Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, Cliff Simon. He is the VP of Sales and Revenue at the Carabina Group. Cliff, welcome. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Excellent. Today, we're going to talk about the dreaded uh, subject of CRM. It's something every sales organization needs. Almost no one does well. And so we're going to go into the good, the bad, and the ugly, and how to prevent your CRM project from turning into a shit fest, and also how to prevent it uh, from becoming just merely a tool of the audit function. So Cliff, let's start with what are the single three top biggest uh, mistakes you see people make when they're implementing CRM? Well, again, Marcus, thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. As far as the issues that I really see people running into, it's not taking the time before they've implemented the CRM to evaluate why they even need it. I think that a lot of folks tend to go and buy something, whether it's a Salesforce or a Pipedrive or a HubSpot, whatever it might be, because they feel like they're obligated to. And then they've made this investment and they do nothing with it. Another big problem that I typically see is folks that buy it and then they have no idea how it actually fits into their existing tech stack or how to build a tech stack around it. There's no, there's no forethought. And then once that's come into place, who's actually going to manage it? Okay. So let's start with the foundations. A house built on sand is likely to collapse. So what does strong foundations look like prior to even spending a penny on purchasing? What exercises do you need to go through to be CRM ready? From a sales perspective, I think it's very beneficial to have a strong playbook in, 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 you know, already developed and in place. Knowing the processes that your team will be walking through makes it much easier to be able to put that into place. Like we tell our clients, I can't read your mind. If it's not down on paper, there's no way for me to build it for you in a CRM. So if you don't already have an understanding of what your processes are, how to work through them properly, how to do your cadences and how to walk the walk, there's no way for you to be able to just put a CRM into place and magically make that happen. You have to have that already. So map it out on paper so that you know what the process is that maps out your customer journey and every touch point along the way from initial point of contact all the way through to where you're selling to their great-grandchildren. Exactly. Yeah, have it all completely mapped out. And I think a big mistake that some people in the sales world tend to make there is that they think of that buying process as being very linear because that's how it appears to us on the sales side of things. But it's not. It's very cyclical. There's lots of detours and deviations, and then things sort of fall back into that. So I might think of it as a seven-step stage, but that's not the sales process for the customer. There's so many different points and back and forth and internal meetings that go on. That should really all be accounted for in the CRM as well. Okay, well, let me take you to task on this because I've seen so many sales organizations see the customer as an inconvenience at the end of a long chain of revenue operations activities. So you have marketing, then you have the SDRs, then you've got the AEs and the salespeople, and all the way through this process. And at the end, kind of as an afterthought, is the customer. If you're advising somebody to develop their sales playbook and ensure that they are really building their sales process around the customer's buying journey, what would you suggest they do to start with? I would focus, again, I'm coming from a SaaS fintech background. You know, we're, I'm in the consulting space now, but we still build our company under that same kind of ethos where I'm looking at retention. What can I do to keep that customer long-term and have the maximum um, lifetime contract value? For me to make sure that that occurs, I need to take care of my customer and focus on the things that they need. So am I, am I offering a service that will continue to add value to them over the long term as opposed to just being a one-stop shop for them to come and get something done and be over with? I think when you start looking at it from that perspective, you can sort of build backwards from it. 
that's music to my ears. However, the reality is that account retention and account growth are seen as the ugly stepdaughter or the ugly stepsister to direct sales and new business. How do you break that mindset when you're going in to meet a customer or a prospect for your business so that they start with the 20-year customer? So I think that starts off with our initial discovery call. For us, we lay out very openly and very early on in the process that unlike most consultancies, we're not looking to have a very tight SOW where we just do the work, we walk away, and then any problems that are left in our wake, we just raise our hands and say, mea culpa, but you got, if you want to fix, you got to pay us more for it. We start off with a very long-term relationship. 95% of our clients are on an annual retainer. That's rather unheard of for a startup Salesforce consultancy, but it comes from the fact that we really want to learn our clients' businesses. And we want to offer them that level of accountability where someone's not just doing the work and walking away. We're actually partnering with them to help them bring their business to that next level. I come from a blue collar background. My managing director's family has been raising sheep and pouring concrete in Ireland for the last 10 generations. You don't get to be successful in those types of businesses unless you treat people the right way. So for us, that, that's really centered to our ethos of who we are as a company. Okay. So again, if we deal with the majority, most organizations or many organizations in tech have embraced SaaS, so software as a service, as their model. What they haven't really taken into account is the context has changed and uh, their paradigms have not. So they very often still act as if they're trying to sell a three-year or a perpetual license. And salespeople have a tendency to do a drive-by shooting, and they only uh, turn up again when there's a renewal or there's a problem. So when you're having the conversations with uh, senior sales executives and uh, founders, CEOs, how are you getting them to shift their thinking so that they are actually building their CRM around the customer? Because, uh, again, with all the goodwill in the world that you have, we know that 80 to 88% of CRM implementations fail to deliver the intended outcome. So how do you make sure that they don't shoot themselves in the foot and just buy a lemon? I mean, that's tough. You're absolutely right. You know, So many of them do fail. And I think that's where we've been very successful. We're picking up those pieces. People have come in and done a bad implementation or they didn't finish the implementation and now we're being called upon because we, we have this different ethos and people see something different about us. That's a, that's a difficult one. I, I think you have to really get in touch with that founder or with that VP of sales and talk to them about their ethos. It, it's hard to change people's mindsets and you can do it over a conversation, but it only lasts for a few minutes, right? If people are going to go back to the way that they're used to doing business until you show them something better and drive that continually. And I think that's, it's a much bigger issue than just, can I make their CRM work for them? That's a tough one. One of the things that I almost never see when CRM has gone wrong is there was almost no time spent speaking to people who are actually going to use the damn thing. So, <laughs> Again, why is it that so few CRM vendors and partners spend enough time talking to the actual salespeople who are going to use it? So for us, we go in and as part of our implementation and discovery process, we do interviews with people all the way up and down the chain. I want to talk to your admin versus your VPs versus your end users, know exactly how they're using it and what's wrong with it. And what can be done to make it better? I think the problem that you're seeing is specifically when you're talking about something like Salesforce, Salesforce went from being a $3 billion company to a $17 billion company in three years. It's a massive uptick in customers and the partner program hasn't been able to keep pace. That's why you see Salesforce starting to acquire companies that do exactly that. They're, they're trying to level up what they can offer internally, but there's still such a tremendous need and because there's a tremendous need, you're seeing consultancies out there that come in, do the work, 
don't necessarily do it well. They do a subpar job and they move on because there's constant demand. Now, within the last three weeks, we've signed agreements with three other consultancies because they have overflow work. And people are stumbling through work right now. And because of it, they're, they're doing shoddy worksmanship. They're not taking pride in what they do. And the customer is the one that's ultimately paying the price for that. So that's, that, I'm glad that you said that because um, in my experience, ultimately, um, a poorly implemented CRM has significant negative consequences for the experience and the outcomes that customers experience. Um, so do you also get to um, interview uh, customers in your uh, process? In some cases we do, in others we don't. Uh, the majority of our clients are in the financial services industry. So people tend to be very hush-hush when it comes to the clients that they work with, especially when you're talking about very high net worth individuals. On the SaaS side, we've gotten a little bit more capability there when it comes to like SaaS tech startups, getting to, have, to actually talk to their clients, but not so much on, on the financial services side. So if you are in a position to speak to the customer, then what are the kind of consequences that you've heard that customers are suffering because of poorly implemented CRM? It feels like a bad, just a bad journey, buying journey, right? How, how can you make that better for them in the future? When you're talking about things like renewals or issues that they have with the CRM, are, are they getting, is someone getting back in touch with them at, at a good uh, clip? If you're talking about it from like a service cloud perspective, how long is it taking someone to answer a ticket from them um, when they have an issue? What's that customer service experience like? It can it could it could range by quite a bit. The other thing we typically talk about is onboarding. What was that experience like? How was it for them to get all your information and get things moving through? In the financial services side, we deal with a lot of high-end investment. People have to fill out 20, 30, 50 page dossiers about what all their holdings are. And that can be a really drawn out process to the point where it takes multiple months, two, three months for that documentation to go back and forth. So if we can help a client onboard their clients faster, that's been a massive uptick from a, a user experience uh, standpoint. I think with one of our clients, we've taken that two to three month process down to about two to three days. That's impressive. Ultimately, I, I fundamentally believe that our job is to deliver bias safety. And without good information and without the right information available when you need it, it's very difficult to be reliable, very difficult to be relevant, and also very difficult to be responsive. And those three elements are crucial to developing bias safety and creating the trusted environment that every seller should be projecting to the customer. And if you don't build your sales process around your customer, with the customer at the heart of everything that you do throughout your entire revenue operation through marketing, pre-sales, sales, customer success, account growth, operations, professional services, your finance systems, then chances are as they get thrown over the wall to the next stage, it will feel disjointed. And from the customer's perspective, they're still buying from one company, whether it's Carabiner or Last Last or whatever. So it's crucial that what your CRM should do is underpin that smooth experience so that they never feel like they're being dumped from one place to the next and then they have to start all over again. You know, time and time again, you hear about where it's gone from the SDR to the AE, and then they have to tell their story all over again. And then from the AE to customer success, and they have to start all over again. And the handover notes are poor. So then bits are missed and stuff slips through the cracks. And it doesn't make it customer-centric, and it doesn't focus on being focused on delivering the outcomes that they're renting or their success. So in your experience of uh, working with CRM, it seems to me that one of the most important questions that you touched on earlier um, around where does it fit, is there a plan? So what kind of planning do they need to go through uh, to make sure that the foundations are strong? I think the biggest question is what will the function of that CRM be? 
will that CRM be the center of a wheel where everything else that you're using feeds into it and it can be your source of truth? If you're going to go with that model and your CRM is not just going to be some advanced little Rolodex that you're paying way too much money for, and you're actually going to utilize it for business intelligence and trying to figure out what's going on with your clients, how to manage a sales process, then you're going to have a lot of success. But you got to make sure everything works in concert with that CRM. It's really difficult to have all these desperate systems that you're paying a ton of money for, that have redundant features and functionality, and then having to manage six different dashboards across six different technologies, right? The more that you can push everything together and make it as easy for your internal teams to manage, the better. Um, That way you can give unified reporting to people. You can easily pass information back and forth between an SDR and an AE for an account handoff or for a kickoff call between an account executive and your customer success team. Your customers should not feel that friction on their side of the line. All that information should be shared on your side. Right? And again, that's part of having a well-developed sales playbook. What happens in scenarios A, B, and C? Lay that out for the team so that they're not left wandering or trying to figure it out themselves. But from a management perspective and an executive level perspective, making sure that you've taken care of that. Because ultimately, that customer experience is what's going to drive you more business down the road. We get, I don't know, probably 30% of our business from referrals. It's because we make sure to do those things properly. It's not rocket science, but it takes diligence and it takes the actual active thought of making sure that those things are in place as opposed to saying, oh, we'll figure it out when we get there. But you've touched on two really crucial issues which are usually deficient in sales operations. The first one is that salespeople are disappointingly ignorant of all the moving parts within their customer's business. And as a result, I mean, they they have next to no business acumen and they don't understand the consequences of changing one part of a system. Implementing CRM is likely to be the, uh, the central system upon which you are going to base most of your business decisions because that tells you where the revenue is coming from, how much you've got to spend, what's coming down the pipe. It's also going to determine the valuation of your business uh, Mm -hmm. should you ever decide to exit. But next to nobody, most sales operations really understands their customer's business as a holistic system. They understand the bits that they sell into just about. And as a result, what they they tend to do then is revert to features and functionality as opposed to thinking about the big questions. And these are simple but very important questions. What are the jobs that need to get done by the prospect? What progress are they making or trying to make? What are their struggling moments? And how are they describing those situations? How do they make money? What do they need next? And how can you help them to get it? And part of the problem here is that your average salesperson is so fixated on trying to hit their quota that they're not really thinking about the customer's best interest. And that issue of buyer safety and being pro-customer is really key. Again, in terms of developing your sales culture, How do you help your customers build their culture using CRM as the platform to not only create the culture, but reinforce it, establish clear boundaries and consequences? I think we try to show that through the way that we do our work. For us, again, discovery is massive. Take current client of ours, we're we're doing a national rollout for the second largest collegiate athletic association in the U.S. There's over 500 member universities and colleges involved, right? It's not a small undertaking. The pivotal piece behind it is the actual student athlete, right? How does this affect them? And making sure that we're going through that process, because ultimately for, for these folks, that's who their client is. It's that student athlete. 
how do you make it simple for that person to understand the documentation that's in front of them? How do you make sure that they're able to know what's available to them from an eligibility standpoint? And putting that all into a place that's easy for them to deliver that information back and forth from athletic directors and coaches and down to the student. And it's very interesting to see the difference between a company that's really focused on those students, their, their client, versus a company that is just trying to go through the motions and, and gather their data internally for themselves. It was a, a long discovery process. We probably had like three or four three-hour calls with this company to make sure that we were building it out the, route, the right way. And we do an hour-long call with them every week to make sure that it's it's going in the right direction and that it's exactly what needs to be built and that we can deal with any tweaks along the way. But by doing that proper discovery on the front end, we know what their ethos is. We understand the way that they're trying to build this and, and the reasoning behind it. It's not just, we want this built for the sake of having it built. We want this built so that we can better offer services and, and opportunity to the people that we serve. So that element of ongoing communication, clarity, and accountability seems to be really key in ensuring and guaranteeing the success of the implementation. Oh, 100%. I think what happens a lot of the times people assume, and we hear this all the time when we're on discovery calls, people give them a sentence or so, and then the consultant will just take off and start yammering about what they think should be happening instead of taking the time to sit back and actually soak it all in and respond instead of just react. For us to, we don't do more than 20 hours a week of development work on any one client. And I know that seems counterintuitive to a successful business model, but we want to make sure that what we're building is exactly what the client wants and what the client needs to get their business to continue moving forward in the way that they've envisioned. If we do maybe 40 hours worth of work, but somewhere along the way there, we've made an executive decision based off what we believe that they want. Ultimately, that client just paid for 20 or 30 hours worth of work that wasn't exactly what they wanted. And we made a choice that they wouldn't have made, even though they may have relayed that information slightly differently earlier on. And now they're on the shoe for however many thousand dollars worth of development that pushes them out from the direction, right? That they, that they were looking for. I think of it akin as walking through the woods and your, your compass is off by one degree. Well, if you catch that early on, it's a, it's a quick adjustment. But if you've gone that one degree and now you've walked 50 miles, that's a massive shift off course. So if we can constantly do course correction along the way, it, it makes sure that both parties are aligned. So this then raises the other question, which is that you need to slow down. First of all, you need to slow down to speed up. And more is not better. Better is better. That's right. You run the risk of uh, making some fundamental, fundamentally wrong assumptions if you're not doing that regular course correct. So given that we're in a society that's always in a hurry and they want it yesterday, how do you manage their expectations to tell them that you're going to take longer than your competitors? You're probably going to be more expensive than your competitors. But at the end of the day, they'll get what they want and need. It's been a challenge to change people's mindsets a little bit. They are getting a high quality product. And I think for the majority of the clients that we have, they're very understanding and willing, I think, yeah, this comes down to us trying to make sure that the client is just as much a fit for us as we are for them. We want to work with people that want to have that long-term relationship. From a price, stand, price standpoint, we're going to be less expensive on average than another Salesforce consultancy that competes in the same space as us. And we've done that intentionally, right? We're willing to take a slightly or significantly less margin, I suppose, oh, but over a longer period of time, right? I, I, for us, it's an easier, more sustainable way to build a business, but it's also a way in which we can guarantee that the level of work that we're doing is of the highest quality. I'd much rather build something slow and do it the right way as opposed to try to build a rocket ship and leave a ton of customers in my way. Again, coming back to your earlier point, 
account retention is where the money is. Having your customers come back and spend willingly year after year after year, decade after decade, means your cost of sale is substantially lower. If you're churning through customers because you've done a poor upfront due diligence and you haven't set the foundations right, means that you end up incurring a massive prospecting tariff that's perfectly avoidable. Uh, I've always maintained since I've been in business that I want fewer customers who pay me a shed load more money, but I deliver way beyond their expectation and way beyond where whatever else they could get elsewhere. I fundamentally believe Carl von Clausewitz, who wrote a fabulous book called On War that Sandhurst and West Point use as their reference Bible, when he was recruiting Prussian officers, would recruit them for two qualities, intelligence and laziness. Minimum effort, minimum loss of life. And I think you should recruit salespeople for the same qualities. They should be intelligently lazy. They put the effort in up front and they do the drill, they do the rehearsal, they do the planning, the preparation. And when they're in front of the customers, they should never be breaking a sweat. It should just be a nice, comfy walk in the park. They've rehearsed every angle. They've planned for every eventuality. And my muse on this is Napoleon at the Battle of Austerlitz. He had decided which general would surrender to him at which little uh, village months in advance. And he knew precisely what was going to happen because he planned for every contingency. He knew the terrain. He had plans for different weather. He knew that he was up against the Russians and the French. Uh, French? Yeah, Russians and the French, I think. He knew that, uh, sorry, not the Russians and the French, the Russians and the Austrians. And he knew precisely what he was going to do. And he built contingency in so that uh, his troops on the ground knew what to do in the event of things not going according to plan. And I think the best salespeople are planners, certainly at an enterprise level. They plan meticulously. They think intelligently about what is likely to happen. But they they think as the customer, not about them. They're not there to try and make a transaction happen. They're trying to establish a lifetime partnership with those customers. And therein lies the difference. How do you create a CRM that underpins and supports that kind of mindset and ethos for planning, preparation, and thinking long-term about the customer? I think what we've seen a lot of lately, maybe the last year to three, you're seeing things like Medic and MedPick, where in my opinion, it's more of just like the flavor of the month. But those things are being implemented into the CRM and it's being done in a way that's very strict and stringent to the point where you can't move on to that next phase unless you have all of those information points. And I think that it leads itself away. It's it's sort of like the perfect being the, the enemy of the good because you're looking to get all this information up front where it might not all be readily available. And that can be really frustrating from a salesperson's perspective. Don't get me wrong. I think a lot of that information is really good stuff that it should be in there. But that's one way I sort of see uh, all of these things that people are trying to implement being done in a way that's not necessarily useful. I think if you have a lot more like open fields or things that aren't necessarily required to continue on to the next step, and that as long as you get that information before the sales cycle is over, you, you'll be okay. I'm just curious in terms of that longer term perspective in terms of trying to prospect for a customer who will be a customer in 10 years time, rather than for a prospect who will help you hit your quota this month. What do you build into the CRM and into the conversation with the purchaser to ensure that they've factored all of that in so that they are playing the long infinite game rather than that finite game of just going for growth at any cost and being very transactional? I think it comes down to having that conversation openly with the client. Most of our clients don't come on board for a year-long contract. They come on board for a three-month engagement. And then we continue on to a year-long contract because we've proven the worth of what we bring. 
So there, there's an element of we say what we're going to do, but then coming back and actually doing what you say you're going to do and continuing to earn the right to have that business, to build the trust, to put in the hard work and the effort to not only sell an account, but to maintain that account and to deliver a high level of work for them so that they have the desire to come back and continue to work with you. Okay. And on an ongoing basis, because obviously with the best will in the world, odds are that first implementation isn't going to be the finished product. What sort of cadence do you engage with them over in order to ensure that it, you stay relevant and uh, the CRM continues to be fit for purpose as they grow and evolve? Weekly. We speak to our clients weekly. I know it's a lot more than people typically do, but for us, it's really important to continue to be in their mind. We don't see ourselves as a vendor. Most salespeople either start off as a peddler and then you work your way up to becoming a vendor. And then after that, you become a trusted advisor, that counselor. For us, that's really where we're trying to end up, where we're able to say, hey, these are industry best practices. This is how I think that fits well into the CRM that you have. And this is how that has an effect on your business. Not coming in saying, hey, spend X amount of dollars with us for the sake of spending X amount of dollars with us. There has to be a purpose and it has to continue to move the needle. So in terms of what comes next, what's happening next in their business, how deeply embedded are you at a strategic level with their executive and their board so that you do re uh, remain relevant consistently over time? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. We're, we're connected continually. I'd say at the executive level, we try to have a conversation at least once a month of what's next. This is what we worked on for this month. This is how we envision this continuing to move forward. As part of that initial conversation that we would have had with them, we would have triaged when we do that deep dive of A, Bs, and Cs, run through the As and the Bs and the Cs. And as things move along, obviously new priorities kick up. Something inevitably needs to be dealt with right away. And we have this with a client we signed last month where we signed them up on a Friday to do a bunch of cleanup and get their CRM up in, in running order. And on Monday, we get an email that their CEO has an urgent need and we end up using the entire month's worth of development time for them that week to deal with that CEO's issue. Now, that's, not, that's fine. And it's nice that we can build it out that way. We'll kick down that, that next set of development to the next month. And that's okay. That's part of the beauty of having an ongoing relationship as opposed to having a strict SOW where they would have had to sign some brand new paperwork and say, oh, we're going to do this. This is what it's going to cost. No, now, okay, hey, we have a relationship. We'll deal with that next month. But right now you have this urgent need. Let's step into that and deal with that for you. Okay. So that's an example of being highly responsive. And um, flexible, yeah. And flexible. So uh, again, I'd like to move on to CRM hygiene which is obviously dependent on salespeople and management actually having some clear guidelines and practices and boundaries and consequences for non-compliance. How do you manage that conversation? Because a lot of salespeople have gone through the misery of a CRM implementation and they all kind of think this too will pass and they're kind of waiting for it to fail. How do you make sure that that side of the hygiene is taken care of and maintained? I think that it's threefold. One, you work with a company like ours to go in and make sure that the CRM is clean and fix it up if you had something that was operating for a while, right? If it's not, if there's not good data in there, you're not going to have good data come out. From the salesperson perspective, what we've seen to be highly effective is to make Salesforce as linear as possible, make CRM as linear as possible for them so that they're not wandering off the path. Make it simple for them to do their job, to get in and get out. The more time they're in CRM, the less time they're selling. There's been a really great company that's come out called Dooley. And Dooley sits on top of Salesforce. You access it very easily from a browser. There's a Chrome extension. How do you spell that? 
D-O-O-L-Y dot A-I. Makes it really easy for, for, uh, for folks to get in there, update it in a couple of minutes. And from a salesperson's perspective, the faster, again, I can get that information, the more likely I am to engage, the more likely I am to actually put in accurate data, the happier management's going to be. On the flip side, the challenge can be getting that data in from the customers. So how can you make that as simple for your customer as possible? Uh, we've got a great partnership with a company called Formstack. They are a Salesforce ISV partner. That data runs seamlessly from those forms, which are all on force.com and fills directly into the, the fields on whatever opportunity, account, contact, or lead object that you designate it to. And it makes it really easy for that data to stay clean, right? Because it's coming from the customer themselves. So from a compliance standpoint, they're opting into that data. Those three things combined tend to lead to a very clean CRM. Ultimately, what you were talking about before as far as valuations, if you have a if you have bad data, it's going to hurt your valuation when you go to sell. It's going to cause operational inefficiencies when you go to merge on an M&A, if you're being bought or you're buying somebody else. And all of this together just makes the world so much easier for operations and for sales to partner together. Right? The operations folks don't have to spend their time doing CRM hygiene because it's already been cleaned up and the data that's coming in is good. So they're happy because they can focus on things that matter as opposed to doing the really mundane task of going through and cleaning up every single one of your contacts and making sure that their email is correct and that their surname is spelled properly. So one of the things that I've seen time and again is a disconnect between sales and operations. And I remember years ago, I was working with a defense company and the head of operations the only time he ever got to uh, do his work during office hours was whenever we were at war, because then everyone muscled in and did what they were meant to do. But during peacetime, it was just an absolute shitstorm because it was just one, um, you know, everyone was busy, busy, busy doing their own thing. And I'm curious again about how you make sure that the CRM is structured in such a way that operations wants to fill it in as well. And then that feeds back into the top of the funnel because operations has to be one of the best sources of new business for any organization if you're doing if you're properly integrated, because they've got their head under the hood and they're seeing all the um, the messy uh, stuff that's going on. And they should be primed to ask questions that feed into sales. So I'm curious again to learn how uh, you guys go about making sure that operations is part of this whole process. Well, that's sort of where we live in, in the process, right? For most of our clients, we are that fractional or outsourced sales ops, rev ops asset. Right? The cost of a Salesforce consultant is astronomical for most businesses. They don't need somebody to come in for eighty to one hundred thousand dollars a year. They can afford to pay somebody to come in part time and do 10, 20, 30 hours a week, whatever it might be, and not have to it's obviously different here in the u s than it is there in the u k right? You have to take into consideration taxes and then healthcare costs, which can be substantial. So by offshoring or outsourcing rather that that work to a firm, you're able to have some cost savings and you're able to get a lot more bang for your buck because you're not necessarily working with someone who has one area of expertise. You get access to a team with various areas of expertise. So for us, it's very easy to sort of fulfill that role and make sure that those things are happening properly and that we're part of that conversation because we're actually driving it. Unlike where I typically see a individual person at a tech company trying to manage all of this, they become overwhelmed. It, operations isn't necessarily even thinking about how to drive the business forward because they're swamped with help tickets and creating reports and dashboards for the C-suite 
where they would love to get that to that technical roadmap and continue pushing the business forward, but they just don't have the bandwidth to do it in so many cases. But once the initial implementation of a vendor's um, or uh, any form of provider has occurred, their field engineers and their maintenance people and all of those folk are probably wandering around the, the client's offices uh, having coffee table chats with people. And again, it just strikes me that where I've seen and where historically I've trained people to train their engineers and their re- repair people and their maintenance folk to ask sales questions, Pipeline grew 400%. Oh yeah, that's easy. <laughs> you're, you're talking about you're talking about boots on the ground, folks. That actually yeah, absolutely. know what's going on. Yeah. yeah, to me, they should have access to the CRM, and that that's information that needs to be flowing back and forth between those engineers on the ground and the people that are actually selling, because they're actually able to tell the stories and give those insights that you're missing out on otherwise. There's tons of tribal and institutional data and yeah. knowledge that that they have their fingertips on, and it, that's so beneficial for the sales team. It's beneficial for the company. You have an asset internally that is a trusted asset that they're being told things that no one else is hearing, no outside vendor that's going to try and come and take your business is hearing. You have to leverage it. You have to. And yeah, drivers is another one. People doing deliveries often pick up little snippets. But it, it just strikes me that the integration of all these different departments needs to be there and they need to have regular communication. When I was working in hospitality, what we ended up doing was having housekeeping, front of house, finance, catering, all attend the sales meeting at least once a month so they could feed back. And again, it massively improved the experience of the, uh, the customers and the guests. But it sure. also meant that the pipeline was always nicely stacked. We took one hotel and we grew their average room rate from £181 a night to £356 a night by a number of things. But one of those things was making sure that all the different departments were feeding into sales. And we ended up driving um, enormous amounts of cross-sell. So, for example the uh, housekeeping people would be trained to speak to guests in the hallway and have a chat. And then if they were complaining about their sore feet, recommend the spa, simple stuff like that. But we don't see enough of that cohesion in many businesses because they are also fixated on doing their work as opposed to really focusing on the customer and not only the experience, but the outcomes that they want. Because I think We've all left companies where the experience was brilliant, but the outcomes were no longer relevant. And we've all put up with crap experience because the outcomes were relevant. And uh, the upheaval of changing vendor was just too much like hard work. Okay, so going back to some of the earlier questions that we talked about, if we think about first question that everyone should be asking is, why are you making this investment? Why are you going to invest in CRM? What are the bad answers that you get back? And what should people really be thinking about in terms of making CRM deliver its fullest potential? Some of these might not be bad answers, but maybe it's just the wrong mindset around these answers. Often, I see C-suite and executives wanting better insight into what's happening with the sales team or better insight into customer retention with customer service and how to manage tickets better or better insight into where their leads are coming from and managing all that through Pardot or HubSpot or whatever else. So there's a good intentionality there, but there's no forethought into what that actually means. It's, It's almost like data for the sake of data. Because they, they feel that they must have a reporting on this or they must be able to utilize X, Y, or Z stat. But because they don't have good data coming in, it's just a stat for the sake of having a stat. It means nothing. I, I think that's, that's one you, you typically see. And then the other one is they've taken the time to build something out and they don't have anyone to manage it. 
right? They, they've, they've got a CRM, but it's not ultimately doing what they want it to do because they thought just by implementing it, it was going to solve all these problems for them, but they've never actually addressed the issues at the root cause internally in their business. They're, they're looking to this device or to this technology to be some type of panacea for them, but it's, it's really not. It's a tool that can be utilized to amplify the efforts of what's already happening within the business. I've so often seen the CRM become a millstone around salespeople's necks because of the demands of reporting from above and from other departments, particularly finance. How do you ensure that that doesn't happen right from the planning stage to make it easy for non-salespeople to spew out the reports that they think they want so that sales doesn't get sucked in? I think there's a couple of things that you can do there. And a lot of it has to do around education. I see so often that the C-suite, specifically a CFO or a controller, is looking to a budget. They're looking to figure out where the next spend is coming from. How is that money coming in? And they're constantly hounding a VP of sales or sales team. And obviously, you know, it all flows downhill. But where is this deal at? When is this going to close? Trying to get people to blood commit to something that isn't anywhere near to it. And I think if you're effectively using data to look at things like buyer intent, if I break down all of my different stages and say, okay, I've had 20 deals that have closed in a similar fashion where I've seen three phone calls, two meetings, and I don't know, whatever contract language has gone back and forth from a negotiation standpoint occur within the four weeks before our typical client signs. If none of those activities are happening, then realistically, that's not going to be a close. Maybe we should push that down the line. So it's a matter one of educating the C-suite to look at forecasting differently and then teaching your salespeople to not just run off of their gut, but to try to use data in a way that can help them accelerate a sales process look at the things that they've done well in the past and replicate them instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. Okay. So another little soapbox that I do like to uh, jump on every now and again is the bland, banal drivel that comes out of marketing. How do you ensure that your sales force is not just pushing out this tedious corporate content using the CRM and automation? Because there must be uh, really good indicators that that stuff actually is detrimental to the sales process. And um, what, what are you doing to ensure that they pick up on that early? Taking a different approach to marketing. I think video is super hot right now. It's very effective. We're all in this work from home environment where everything is digital. Your inbox is inundated. Your LinkedIn... I couldn't even tell you how much spam I have in my LinkedIn. So when I see a video come through, it's a change of pace. Entices me to look. And this is how I have my salespeople sell, right? They reach out via video. They don't say a thing about our company. They're focusing on the client and what might be important to them based off what that person's LinkedIn shows or whatever research they did on them. And that's it. And go for a conversation and keep it very light. 30 to 45 seconds max. Make it something that's interesting for their day. I can send you an article, but I I have a colleague of mine who I'm actually doing a podcast with tomorrow. He saw, and he comes from outreach originally. So, you know, they're they're the kings of sequencing and making sure that they're funneling all that data into Salesforce. But he saw a huge uptick by utilizing video. He went to one video, got, his response rate to 24% added a second video to, to the sequence where all he was doing was pointing up to the previous message and say, Hey, check out this previous message. I sent you his response rate 34% on cold outreach. Very good. Yeah. That's ridiculous. So for those of you who are not familiar on LinkedIn, you need to use the mobile app and then go to someone's profile and then click on message. And then at the bottom, there is a plus sign. And if you click on the plus, you can either leave a voicemail or you can leave a video. And this bypasses switchboards, it bypasses gatekeepers, and it bypasses direct dial. 
And if you haven't got their mobile, video works. And it's nice too. You, you have to be connected with them to be able to send it. We also work, I have a SCP that we use called Ample Market. And Ample Market's Chrome extension actually allows you to send those same voice messages on your desktop, which is how I do it personally. I, I don't typically use the LinkedIn mobile app for that just because I hate bouncing back and forth between two devices. I like sort of being on my multiple monitors, and, but it's a, it's a fantastic tool. Excellent. Okay. I shall definitely have a quick check out of that. Fabulous. Cliff, we, we're coming to the top of the hour. So let's start wrapping up. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Cliff age 23. What choice bit of advice would you give him that you know he would have probably have ignored, but I would probably have benefited from? A lot of what we've talked about today and how to treat your customer. I was the prototypical lone wolf early on in my career, and I burned and churned through customers. I was very, very good at it, thankfully, but or maybe not so thankfully for those poor customers. But I would encourage a younger me to be, as you mentioned, more customer-centric and worry about the things that matter to them as opposed to just hitting a quota. That would be my number one piece of advice from a business perspective. That and get up about 20 minutes earlier. (laughs) There is a question that I'm rattling around in my head at the moment. We're trying to address it with the new community that we've set up, Sales of Force for Good. And the question is this, is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? Because you've touched on it really nicely there, the, the lone wolf who burns through customers. It's a lot of hard work. And I, I'm curious about your thoughts on what makes a great salesperson in the modern age. Being consultative, I think we hear that term a lot. And I think a lot of people think they are, but really understanding your customer, taking the time to educate yourself, not just on them, but their industries. I think one of the reasons we do so well in financial services as a company is because my managing director's background is in investment bank. My background is in fintech. We understand the challenges that they face. And it's not just us coming to them peddling a good, right? We're really coming to them as a trusted advisor. And yeah, you have to earn that seat at the table. But when you come into a client and start talking their language and you understand their challenges because you've seen it before and you've done the, the hard work of learning it, now you're speaking to one another as peers. You're not sitting on the opposite side of the negotiation table. You're sitting side by side planning together. It, it makes all the difference. It's interesting. I've interviewed a couple of dozen CXOs. And without exception, every one of them, when I asked them the question about the best experience they've ever had in sales, they always say, the salesperson makes me feel safe. They put me first. They listen deeply. They ask exceptional questions that leave them smarter when they finish the call, by the time they finish the call. And the one thing that's come through with every one of them is they want to be challenged. And every single time they say, if I don't feel that safety, if I have any lingering doubt, that's where at the 11th hour, if I'm going to buy, I'm going to hit you with a real push for a discount because I want to mitigate my risk and I want you to pay for it. And if you are not consultative, that's too many syllables in that one, and you are not really paying great attention to them and putting them at the heart, then chances are either they won't buy or they'll stiff you on a discount late in the sale. Tell me this, what, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you really rate? Read this one over Christmas. I love it. It's called Extreme Ownership. I don't know if you're familiar with Jocko. Yeah, Jocko, yeah. Jocko Willing. I, I love this book. Um, I have a two-pager on it that I hand out to everyone that works for me to let them know my leadership style, my expectations from them, what they can expect of me and what I expect of myself. For me, any team failure is my failure. Anytime they've done something that, in my mind, falls short of the mark, I go back and say, did I clearly explain this to you? Or did I make my expectations fully known and fully transparent? And did I give you a plan to get there? 
if I didn't do those things, I can't hold you accountable to that because that's failure on my part. Try to do the same thing with our clients, right? Make sure that they fully understand what we're coming to the table with. I want to know what their expectations are and set out exactly how we intend to get there. If there's a deviation, we need to make sure that we're being very open and communicative about that. So that way, everyone's always on the same page and we're all going towards the same end goal. So love that book. Rereading one of my old favorites, which is how to make, or rather how to win friends and influence people, Dale Carnegie. It's an old book, but it's a good one. Those two are the ones I'm focusing on right now. I just did a whole course. I, I teach over in the UK as well, funnily enough. So I just did a whole course on negotiation. A lot of it was taken from Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. And there's a couple other ones out there that I think are, are solid, like um, Seven Habits, Highly Effectual People. I don't do too much listening nowadays. I, I feel like I get a lot of AirPod fatigue. My son's <laughs> constantly trying to pull it out of my ears. So when I'm not down here in my office, I'm usually not listening to stuff anymore. But Fair enough. Excellent. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Oh, gosh. Hiring good help. We're growing at an incredible rate. We're hiring a new consultant every month at this point, sometimes multiple in a month, just because we're signing the work. There's so much out there. There's a lot of people that are hungry for people who are willing to partner with them and not just say, here's your CRM and go. Uh, They're really looking for people who are willing to lead them. Like you said, CXOs are looking for someone that's going to challenge them and challenge their way of thinking and help them do more with their business. And you have to be able to walk alongside them and do that instead of just saying, hey, this thing's going to be the next greatest thing. It's going to be your pansy. It's going to fix everything for you. It's not how it works. No, and I mean, recruitment's one of the toughest things there is, and particularly where you're going through uh, massive growth. And every manager should be recruiting on a daily basis. It's the manager's equivalent of prospecting for new customers. And in my businesses, I'm having to reach out to people on a daily basis. We're constantly looking for new recruits to build the bench because even if we haven't Mm -hmm. got a vacancy now, what I don't want is to have to make a compromise hire on the basis of the candidates that are available at the time. I want to be able to make the best hire from the entire market. And so recruitment is my number. And I have to pay a recruiter for it. (laughs) Well, I don't mind paying a recruiter for it if they bring me a great candidate because people are an investment. They're not a cost. They appear on the wrong place on the balance sheet. Yes, we've all made bad investments, but the reality is if you bring on a great salesperson, they could be worth one, two, three, 10 million a year. You bring on a great partner manager, they could be worth 5, 10, 20, 50 million a year. So who cares if you pay a recruiter $90,000 to recruit them? Obviously, you'd prefer not to. But if they're going to bring in 5 million a year, which 40, 60% falls to the bottom line, it's a good investment. Yeah. And I think that's somewhere we'll we'll probably be in another year or so. At this point, it's uh, cash flow. If I got to pay a recruiter $30,000 a month for the next three months, that's, that's a big hit. Yeah. So. Well, again, one of the things that I do with my clients is when I make a placement, I get my fee spread over two years. So on a monthly basis, because I fundamentally believe that no one wants to hire. What they want is someone who will succeed in the role and stay. And salespeople only really hit their stride um, at, by the end of year three. So I'm even willing to go three years, but it's a bigger fee. That two year, that's incredible. I'm going to have to try that one. Excellent. Cliff, how can people get hold of you? They can either email me. My direct email is cliff at carabinergroup.com. That's C-A-R-A-B-I-N-E-R group.com. It's also our web address is carabinergroup.com. You can check us out, read our case studies. Um, And we also have a new YouTube channel that we just launched. It's content that's on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram and on TikTok. And that is the Salesforce guys, just how it sounds. Part of our ethos here is also empowering the next generation of talent. So we have a ton of college kids that we partner with anywhere from freshmen to seniors at some of the top universities across the US. And we're teaching them about Salesforce. And what we really want to do is 
to teach college kids at Salesforce is as ubiquitous in the workspace as Microsoft Excel and let them know that there's free training. We're more than happy to give them some on-the-job learnings so that way they can walk into a full-time role as soon as they graduate, making some really good money. Excellent. That's fantastic. Very laudable. Cliff Simon, thank you. Marcus, is great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me on your show. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million turnover mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real sustainable hyper growth with highly engaged and highly productive employees across your entire revenue operations function and clients who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, let's schedule a call over Zoom. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com. Almost forgot that. And uh, you can DM me on LinkedIn. And if you're really committed to being pro-customer, that means putting the customer at the heart of everything you do and creating the conditions for buyer safety, then check out Sales of Force for Good. We're a global community committed to putting the customer first and raising the bar in the entire sales profession. You can check us out by using hashtag ProCustomer or hashtag SAFFG. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.